You're listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and creedal Christian thought. I'm Brendan, and I'm here again with the one and only Skyler. Skyler. Skyler Hamilton. <laughs> oh, goodness. We've got another... Uh, Fun episode coming your way. Uh, we're going to be in mostly Matthew 11 today, which will be really fun and exciting. But, you know, of course, before we get there, all the fanfare, people writing in, just telling me, you know, we want to know more things about Skylar that <laughs> make no, wow, you know, relevant contribution to the podcast, yeah. except to be random. Yes. And personally appealing. We're really trying to draw in people's emotions here. Yes. Trying to get some, you know, street cred. Mm-hmm. How do we do that? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. Um, hey, I will say, and this is just random, but I just I thought street cred, and I was like, hey, we'll be out on the streets handing out a bunch of flyers. Um, this is just a, a shameless advertisement for anybody who listens to this before the actual event. But coming up on, I believe, March 16th. I'm going to look at my calendar to make sure I got the date right there before I tell everybody. March 16th, 2023 at 6 o'clock at First Baptist Church of Provo in Provo, Utah, we are having a collegiate and young adult event. Does that mean you have to be in college or young adult come? No, it doesn't. But uh, we're going to be handing out flyers on the university campuses that week. And uh, it's going to be a fun event. And I will be hosting, uh, as part of the event, a panel discussion with former Latter-day Saints who are now born-again Christians. And they'll be sharing a bit of their story and uh, yeah, I think I think you might be on that panel. Word on the street says, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So, anyways, if anybody is uh, listening to this and would like to come and join us that night, we did this last year in March, and it was just a really good event, and very encouraging. And so, if you are a uh, evangelical Christian in the area and would like to come and just be encouraged, or if you're LDS and would like to come and hear some different perspectives. Um, you are welcome to join us for that. All right, random question for you today. What, what is the scariest thing you've ever done? Scariest thing? Yeah, I'm putting you on the spot. Sometimes I give some advance warning on what questions come yeah. in. Yeah, wow. Not this time. Scariest thing. Do you have one that comes immediately to mind? Um, Man. So I, Once I was stranded in Moscow. The mm. true story. No phone. And I missed the last metro train. Wow. And I didn't speak the language. Yeah. So I was literally lost in Moscow for a night. Wow. And in the parks, even where they do have streetlights, it was like wild dogs. Yeah. Or like the clan of drunk men yelling Russian at me. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So there was that. The, so going to Moscow, but I laughed about stranded. it. It was so absurd that yeah. actually, it's just like, well, that is insane. Do you so. know some Russian? Mm-mm. Oh, nope. Yeah. That's yeah. about it. No, uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. 
Brendan. Yeah. That's all I got, man. Yeah. Se- seventh grade, I took it for six weeks. Russian. Yeah. yeah. So it is an I'm intense language. Yet. Right? That's how you say no. Mm-hmm. Yep. Anyways. <clears throat> man, what would I answer on this one? Um, the scariest thing I've ever done. Ah, man. I really don't know. I... Oh, probably, probably the scariest thing I've ever done was randomly reaching out to my now father-in-law to ask permission to speak with his daughter in an intentional dating sense. Cause I didn't know the guy. Uh, he was in, he was in Africa. Hmm. <laughs> as a an American missionary. I didn't even know if I was getting into contact the right way because it was yeah, so that was that was the most nerve wracking thing, emailing this guy that uh a faithful missionary in Kenya and saying, Hey, I'm this dude and I'd like to talk to your daughter. That's probably the scariest thing, I'd say. I don't get like I don't get afraid very easy. Well, I mean, I so, think anybody would be scared in that situation, yeah. right? I mean, that's probably it. <laughs> I don't, I've never really, I've done a lot of stupid stuff, but I wasn't afraid. And that was probably why I did the stupid thing, because I wasn't as afraid as I should have been. So, I'm glad I'm alive still. <laughs> Me too. I'm glad my mother doesn't know the things I've done in my <laughs> dumber years. <laughs> my teenage, post-teenage college years. Oof. Never did anything illegal, but definitely did things that could have got me killed. I had long hair, so I was accused of doing things illegal. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, <laughs> lived in Utah, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I would have lived in Utah when I had long hair and scraggly beard, people would have definitely assumed I was straight off the street. Because <laughs> people in Texas even assume that. Yeah. All right, man. Shall we jump into this? Yes. Okay, so we are looking at the LDS curriculum for March 13th to the 19th, if you're following along in real time. And that is the passages Matthew 11 to 12 and Luke 11. Like I said, we're pretty much going to spend most of the time in Matthew 11 and 12 because that's where the bulk of the Sunday school curriculum is focused. Um, So the title of this section or this uh, lesson is I will give you rest. And so you can see where we're basically going with that. But uh, yeah, you've got uh, the normal setup for the curriculum, the invite sharing section saying, sharing an example of how you've applied the scriptures to help your class members think of how they've applied the scriptures throughout the week. And then we get into the teach the doctrine section. And the first section there is Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 is the verses that are to be read alongside of that. I'm going to go ahead and read those verses because we are going to spend a good bit of time in them, but um, it'll just let you know where we're going. Come to me, Jesus says, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The subsection of that, um, uh, under that verse in the LDS curriculum, is Jesus Christ will give us rest as we rely on him. 
And then it goes on to say, the Savior taught that he will help us carry our heavy burdens if, if, if we accept his invitation. Take my yoke upon you. And uh, then it kind of encourages some different ideas to uh, think through what the teaching is saying. Share facts like these. Yokes are designed to help animals carry heavy loads, get work done. And yokes are often custom fitted to the animal. What do these details add to your understanding? Uh, so on and so forth. And then it goes on in the next section um, to say, we all have burdens that can be made lighter through Jesus Christ's power. That's something that we, you pointed out, Sky, that it's just been a regular pattern. It's, it's never Jesus Christ, right? It's always Jesus Christ's power, Yeah, which is interesting in light of all the things we've talk, talked about, even with the magic worldview. Mm-hmm. To encourage discussion about this, you can invite class members to read and discuss Matthew 11, 28 to 30 with someone else in the class. They can include questions like these in their discussion. What are some examples of burdens a person might carry? What do we need to come to Christ? To come unto Christ? What do we need to, to do? do. Uh, yeah. whew, I almost <laughs> missed some important <laughs> words there. Edited it out. Yeah. <laughs> what do we need to do to come into Christ? What does it mean to take the Savior's yoke upon ourselves? How have you felt the Savior lighten your burdens as you have turned to Him? Class members may find additional insights in Elder David A. Bednar's message: "Bear up their burdens with." ease. We're going to spend a good bit of time in Bednar's message because uh, we hope to show you how different our interpretation of this passage is in light of the way that he teaches it in that lesson. All right, then we go on to Matthew 12, 1 to 13, which Matthew 12, 1 to 13 is the uh, this particular passage on Jesus being the Lord of the Sabbath and teaching on that, which is something that you see regularly throughout the synoptics come up, but it uh, basically says the Sabbath day is to do, the Sabbath is a day to do good, and it says in their zeal to keep the Sabbath day holy, the Pharisees had implemented strict rules and man-made traditions, which eventually clouded their understanding of the true purpose of the Sabbath, and it goes on to say, what do these accounts teach about the purpose of the Sabbath? What do we need to know about the Sabbath? How has our Savior changed? How has the relationship with the Savior changed as we've tried to keep the Sabbath day or his day holy? And this is while the Pharisees emphasized numerous details, d- detailed rules regarding the Sabbath, the Savior taught a simple principle. It is lawful to do well on the Sabbath. What are the prin- principles? Again, that, that's another thing we've seen again and again, right? Mm-hmm. Principles, 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 principles. It's like, what are the principles? Which, as we've highlighted over and over, shows that there's an immediate jump to application in all of their interpretation of the in, scriptures. In depersonalization. Yeah. Yep. You know, Very true. It's it almost... Uh, Makes Jesus more a Socrates than a Jesus. Yeah. In my view. Yeah. Uh, They ask, why are principles more effective than lists of rules as we strive to develop spiritual self-reliance? That's an interesting question. They're making a distinction between principles and a list of rules. Mm -hmm. And then the goal is? To develop spiritual self-reliance. Reliance. Mm. Let's keep that in mind when we get to Bednar and he starts talking about atonement. Yeah. Pretty <laughs> Self-reliance. Wow. Yep. Claiming this Jesus? Yeah. Of course, they're not. I guess that's the one <laughs> the one upside to this, right? But Yep. Uh, then we got uh, uh, the additional resources section, which they usually give some different quotes, typically from Russell Nelson or members of the Quorum of the Twelve. 
And uh, we're not going to cover any of those right at the moment. But uh, instead, we're just going to jump right on back to, because that's all there is in the curriculum this week. I don't even know. I mean, I guess in the seminary manual and stuff, they probably covered Luke 11. I didn't look at the seminary manual this week, so I'm just going off the Sunday school. But uh, let's go ahead and go back to Matthew 11, 28 to 30. And, uh, Skyler, I don't know how you want to accomplish this. Oh, I didn't read our creed and confession. Whoops. Should we do it? (laughs) Or should we hold it off? I feel like we should do it. Okay. I feel like we should do it before we get into okay. reading Elder. It'll apply on 27. Yeah. yeah. Let me let me just, I know we're, we're all out of sorts here right now, but uh, let me just read for us the Chalcedonian definition. Following the saintly fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man, of a rational soul and a body, consubstantial with the Father as regards his divinity, and the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity, like us in all respects except for sin, begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity, and in the last days the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards his humanity. One in the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same, only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the creed of, of the fathers handed down to us. It's so good. So many of these, I mean, early confessions and creeds and everything else are, are so clearly trying to make sure that the church rightly understands the nature of Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all... I mean, not all, but I mean, it's largely Christological. Absolutely. We've got to get Jesus right. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that we consistently are battling when we're dealing with Mormon thought. Absolutely. And to comment on that, which, yeah, I think Chalcedon is second to Nicaea. Uh, By that, I mean the Nicene Creed, which I know technically was formalized at the Council of Constantinople in 381. But... um, is it's honoring the creator-creation distinction that we've emphasized so much, even within the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. So the four fences of Chalcedon are that deity and humanity subsist in Jesus without confusing the natures, meaning it's one person, Jesus, but he has a human nature and a divine nature. It's, it's not that the divine nature gets absorbed into the human nature or that the human nature is di- somehow divinized. Um, but that even in the person of Jesus, though the unity of the person, the integrity of the person is affirmed, the two natures do not change one another. So the four fences, it's called, of the Chalcedon is don't confuse the natures, transmute the natures, divide the natures, or separate the natures. And you'll notice if you compromise even one of those, you end up with a different Jesus. And 
of course, within the Mormon worldview, there's not even a, <laughs> there's no distinction to be had at all. Yeah, which we'll see on uh, the interpreter's comment on verse twenty seven here mm-hmm. in a minute. Yeah, that's good. Okay, let's go to the Bednar talk, and this is a talk from the two thousand and fourteen general conference. One of them, I don't see if it's the fall or the spring, but either way, two thousand fourteen general conference, and. Uh, Really, we're reading this because he is basing the talk largely on Matthew 11. And so uh, his title is Bear Up Their Burdens with Ease. And then the kind of top subheading, if you will, says, The unique burdens in each of our lives help us to rely upon the merits, mercy, and grace of the Holy Messiah. Now, we're going to think through and see, is he even remotely close to interpreting this verse correctly when it comes to what Matthew is trying to convey or what Jesus is trying to convey even in in uh, talking to his disciples um, in Matthew 11. And I think we will get a pretty clear picture of an LDS understanding of this sort of a verse from reading his probably a little too lengthy but still appropriate to take the time to read it all opening illustration. So let me read this. Bednar writes, I have a dear friend who, in the early years of his marriage, was convinced he and his family needed a four-wheel drive pickup truck. His wife was sure that he did not need, but merely wanted, the new vehicle. A playful conversation between this husband and wife initiated their consideration of the advantages and disadvantages of such a purchase. Sweetheart, we need a four-wheel drive truck, she asked. Why do, we, why do you think we need a new truck? He answered her question with what he believed was the perfect response. What if we needed milk for our children in a terrible storm, and the only way I could get to the grocery store was in a pickup? His wife replied with a smile, If we buy a new truck, we will not have money for milk. So, why worry about getting getting to the store in an emergency? Over time, they continued to counsel together and ultimately decided to acquire the truck. Shortly after taking possession of the new vehicle, my friend wanted to demonstrate the utility of the truck and validate his reasons for wanting to purchase it. So he decided he would cut and haul a supply of firewood for their home. It was in the autumn of the year, and the snow had already fallen in the mountains where he intended to find wood. As he drove up the mountainside, the snow gradually became deeper and deeper. My friend recognized the slick roads. Con- the slick road conditions presented a risk. But with great confidence in the new truck, he kept going. Sadly, my friend went too far along the snowy road. As he steered the truck off the road at the place that he determined to cut the wood, he got stuck. All four of the wheels on the new truck spun in the snow. He readily recognized that he did not know what to do to extricate himself from this dangerous situation. He was embarrassed and worried. My friend decided, well, I will just not sit here. I will not just sit here. He climbed out of the vehicle, and he started cutting wood. He completely filled the back of the truck with the heavy load. And then my friend determined he would try driving out of the snow one more time. As he put the pickup into gear and applied power, he started to inch forward. Slowly, the truck moved out of the snow and back onto the road. He finally was free to go home, a happy and humbled Man, I pray for the assistance of the Holy Ghost as I emphasize vital lessons that can be learned from this story about my friend, the truck in the wood. It was the load. It was the load of wood that provided the traction. I don't think they get that dynamic when they 
do these talks, so I should maybe calm down a little bit here. Yeah, you're getting a little more yeah. entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> <laughs> getting into my FBC preacher yeah, mode Yeah, I was like, yeah, <laughs> nope, a little too evangelical. Oh. It was the load of wood that provided the traction necessary for him to get out of the snow, to get back on the road, and to move forward. It was the load that enabled him to return to his family and to his home. And he goes on to talk about each one of us carries a load. Our loads have all sorts of dynamics to them, demands, opportunities, obligations, privileges, afflictions, blessings, options, constraints, so on and so forth. But he goes on to make it very clear throughout the rest of the talk that your burdens are what basically help you to move forward. And really in that illustration, the idea that he is getting at is that you should load up, you should work to carry your load, essentially. And that's what's going to get you, give you the traction to move forward in life. Um, now, I just wanted to read the um, introduction. I know we've got lots of notes further, and I may just turn it over to you to make some of those. But contrast that, or at least just listen to what Jesus is saying here, and tell me if you see anything different from this idea that uh, if you want to get unstuck, you need to just put more in your truck. And uh, the heavier, the better. <laughs> yeah. You know, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. This is, this is God's word, Matthew 11. That you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Uh, okay, what kind of load are little children going to be carrying? Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The idea here is when you come as one who is laboring and heavy burdened and you know feel like you've got too much in the back of your truck, Coming to Jesus is where you get rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Skylar, what are some of the comments that you have on Bednar's interpretation of this verse or just the talk that is recommended in the curriculum? Yeah, well, <clears throat> he he actually asks, okay, Here's the practical application to the story you just read. It says there are two questions that can be helpful as we assess our load. That's <laughs> periodically and prayerfully assess our load. Is the load I am carrying producing the spiritual traction that will enable me to press forward with faith in Christ on the straight and narrow path and avoid getting stuck? That's interesting because what's, What's actually enabling in the story is the work itself. That, yeah. that I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, so is the works I'm doing, do I have enough works, right, to produce the spiritual traction that then enables me to press forward? Oh, and then we'll throw in with faith in Christ, how that functions, and then what we're going to see is not, not really indicated. On the straight and narrow path, now keep in mind, Path, think of the temple stuff we've been talking about, right? Eternal progression. Yep. And avoid getting stuck. 
Here's the second question. Is the load I am carrying creating sufficient spiritual traction so I ultimately can return home to Heavenly Father? Notice return. Boy, that's a blow, isn't it? Yes. So once again, it's so interesting. He, he's going to go on and literally cite this verse um, just a paragraph later. But those are the two questions that the supposedly apostle of Jesus Christ is asking supposedly the one true church on yeah. the earth today yeah. to consider and then cites this verse. Yeah. So here is this message from Jesus, which we'll get into it, that I'm the one who can give you rest. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, like I'm the one you can come to and your load essentially becomes almost a non-load um, yep. in the way that it was being articulated um, in Matthew. And yet the LDS curriculum is referring this talk saying, I mean, I think that second question is just such a heavy hitter. Is the yeah. load I'm carrying creating sufficient yeah. spiritual traction? Is your load, that's literally saying, yeah. is your load big enough? Yes. Or like, do you have enough on your shoulders? Mm-hmm essentially, to get the traction that you need in order to return home to Heavenly Father. And he doesn't even want to put the, the veneer of Christ in that second one. No. Which is, which is helpful for us, right? I mean, th- think about it. Let's say, um, Brendan, let's say you're giving a talk on these verses and how to balance resting in Christ and yet still trying to live out in your life in sanctification, Right more of what he taught. What do you what might you emphasize on this verse? What about looking forward to the cross? Mm. Him bearing our sins and iniquities, yep. him bearing the burden. So that instead of being as we all are, worthy of hell and facing judgment and having the relationship with God being defined by that and how far we show, how far far we fall short of the law, it becoming a relationship of father to son where we are children who try, but ultimately will be judged by the work of another yeah. who was sufficient. <laughs> I mean, here it's the load I'm carrying. And, and if you just, just below that, he says, sometimes we mistakenly may believe that happiness is the absence of a load. That's interesting. <laughs> I will give you rest. Yeah. <laughs> I will give you um, but bearing a load, this is Bednar again, sorry. But bearing a load is a necessary and essential part of the plan of happiness. That's now bearing a load. Once again, there, has he mentioned the law? Has he mentioned the fall? He's going to mention it once. We'll get to it. What What is the context for this verse in terms of the entire? arc of the Bible yeah. in looking for a Messiah who can do what Israel failed to do, who can do what Adam failed to do, who can do, right? All these things. No, no, no. It's not Christ is a necessary and essential part. It's bearing a load. And notice, it's not a defined uh, path of reconciliation before a holy God, right? It's returning home, whatever that means, mm-hmm. based on a plan of happiness happy 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 yeah okay um 
Because our individual load needs to generate spiritual traction, we should be careful to not haul around in our lives so many nice but unnecessary things that we are distracted and diverted from the things that truly matter most. So that's it. It's not whether you're working, right? A righteousness that's had by works, Paul says, what is it, Romans 10? Is it in Romans 10? The righteousness that we have by faith in the one who does work or the righteousness we have by working, right? And then under that, he has the strengthening power of the atonement and he he cites these verses. (laughs) And he then says, um, to jump down a little bit, consider the Lord's uniquely individual invitation. And um, though it involves individuals, I don't think it's a, uniquely individual mm. invitation. We we pray our Father. There's a we. Yeah. <laughs> what, what he said, the Nicene Creed, we believe, right? Um, once again, that individualism peering through. That's right. To Let's see, the individual invitation to take my yoke upon you. Okay. That's, <laughs> let's see. Come, un, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And then in contrast, I will give you rest. He cites that verse and says, the invitation is to come take his yoke and put it upon us. That's right. Now, he does say, take my yoke upon you. We're going to get into that, that, um, that contrast that is happening. Um, but there's no wrestling in the irony here. Yeah. Right? Well, How can a yoke there's be no, restful? Yeah, there's no, inv- there's no invite to come into his rest, right? right. It, there, there's an invite to take on his yoke. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, really exactly the opposite of what Jesus is getting at in the greater context mm-hmm. of Matthew. And we see that so clearly in uh, chapter 12 and how right after this command, come come to me, all you who need rest, there is the uh, example of the Sabbath, you know, where the disciples are working on the Sabbath and there's accusations thrown at Jesus because of that. And Jesus is saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I, I am the place of rest. My disciples rest in me. Right. And that's not to neglect the, the keeping of the Sabbath, even there and at that time, but it was to say there's a greater fulfillment of the Sabbath. And that Sabbath is that you are going to rest in me. What does that mean to rest in Christ? I mean, what could he be talking about in terms of, Rest. Well, I tell you exactly what he's definitely not saying, and that's take more work on you, take more load on you. Yep. And what what are I mean? What is the LDS Church referring to when they say you need to take the yoke? And specifically, they say this. They say because right after that line, Bednar says, "Consider the Lord's uniquely individual invitation to take my yoke upon you." And then they say, "Making and keeping sacred covenants." yokes us to and with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to take the yoke? What does it mean to be yoked to Christ? It's to make and to keep sacred covenants. Is that rest or is that work? Work. Yeah. And and not just work for salvation, work for exaltations. Yeah. And some of these covenants, of course, are being done in temples made with hands. <laughs> Uh, that should be said. Yeah. And it, it, this is, I love this, in essence. So here's a supposed apostle Jesus saying, in essence, he's now going to tell us what this means. The Savior is beckoning us to rely upon and pull together with him. Yep. 
even though our best efforts are not equal to and cannot be compared with his. And I would just add, yet. As we trust in and pull our load with him during the journey of mortality, truly his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And how does that even help his... The whole story was based on getting to work. Like, stop thinking about it. You're stuck. Just get to work. Get to work. Yeah. Get to work. Yep. And then he just says, well, the yoke is easy, burden is light. It's like, it almost feels like he's like, oh, well, I guess I have to fit that phrase in somehow. Because yeah. he's going to then move on for it. It's not difficult to see contradictions going on here. No. And, and I, I feel like that's a constant battle. Is the, It's a tug of war in the LDS church of Jesus gives you rest, you better work hard. Jesus gives you rest, you better work hard. And we yeah. see that coming up over and over again. It's so confusing. and. Mm-hmm. You know, as somebody who's just trying to be perhaps a faithful member in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I could see how there would be a constant tearing of, am I resting in Christ or not? I mean, probably most of what they're hearing is you need to work, keep the covenants, do the covenants, do your side, do your part, all this sort of stuff. But then it's like they'll give you just a little bit of a of a taste of uh, of the the true rest that can come in Christ just to make it seem evangelical enough to keep you going. I mean, mm-hmm. it's almost like, like, uh, uh, Lazarus, you know, being, being down, if I'm thinking clearly on this one, but it's like him getting a drip of water while he's burning in hell. But what good is a drip of water going to do when you're sitting in a fire? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. That's almost what it's like they're doing. I'll give you some little drips of water, yep. but I'm going to keep you in the heat of, the of feeling the weight of responsibility for your obedience to the law in order to get to exaltation. I think it's uh, kind of like weightlifting where, you know, a weight that you start at eventually becomes easy. So it's like, yeah, it's rest eventually once you get used to the workload. Yeah. Mm. Um, I mean, so to jump forward a bit, he just on this covenant theme, Covenants received and honored with integrity and ordinances performed by proper priesthood authority are necessary to receive all of the blessings made available through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, Which we're, we'll have a, I mean, we'll have to do a whole episode on the atonement eventually and try yeah, to parse out what, what in the world, yeah, what in the world the LDS Church believes regarding the atonement. But you can get the flavor just in this article this article that the atonement is somehow in some almost mystical way, it seems like it's Jesus enabling us by some power to become better. Yep. To be able to do what is required. Right. Which is so far off from a biblical understanding of atonement. Right. I mean, it's so far off. I mean, even differences we have with Rome, Rome is Rome, in the Council of Trent that anathematizes what we consider the gospel, is less Pelagian than this. Let's get this straight. <laughs> yeah. Like, Rome is way closer than this. I mean, it should be said. Yeah. Uh, not how it functions in the daily life. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying by the definitions that we look to. I mean, this, um, I'm not even sure. I mean, especially in terms of the backdrop. Um, what you know, Pelagius, the the kind of perfection is required. I mean, sorry, perfection is uh, possible, therefore it's required. Kind of mentality. You definitely see this in here, but that's almost the most orthodox part of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, he reads this uh, 
verse from the Book of Mormon about, you know, white Native Americans that didn't historically exist. And it says, um, And now it came to pass that the burdens which were laid upon Alma and his brethren were made light. So this is going to get deeper into this idea of the power. The atonement is there to in, empower you to do what is required. Um, yea, the Lord did strengthen them that they could bear up their burdens with ease, and they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. Okay, that's Mosiah 24, 15. He then says this, The challenges and difficulties were not immediately removed from the people, but Alma and his followers were strengthened, and their increased capacity made the burdens lighter. Yep. Notice, no mention of Christ, no mention of the cross. I mean, there's your weightlifting illustration. Exactly. And then he says, these good people, right? These good people. None good. No, not one. All fall short of the glory of God. Isaiah saying, even their righteousness were as filthy rags. No. These good people, it, it's there to make good people better, right? These good people were empowered through the atonement to act as agents and impact their circumstances. Talk about self-reliance. I, I want to point this out just once again to tie it to the, the manual, which, of course, cites this talk, which is why we're here. Listen to this. Why are principles more effective than lists of rules as we strive to develop spiritual self-reliance? Um, I remember growing up and hearing how much David O. McKay liked Ralph Waldo Emerson. Just a little background, because self-reliance is the book he's most famous for, right? And um, I think he's in the Joseph Smith category when it comes to the American religion, as even Harold Bloom sees in his book. But this is a guy who, of course, rejected the divinity of Jesus, became a Unitarian, eventually leaves the Unitarian church because it's too burdensome. And he gives a divinity school address in 1838 that's really famous, in which he says every individual has to be a new bard for the Holy Spirit and mm-hmm. therefore should write his own creed. Yeah. Listen to this. Jesus Christ. Oh, he's gonna, he says Jesus Christ. So Emerson must be a Christian, right? He denies the full deity of Jesus. Yeah. This is Emerson. Jesus Christ. The, Emerson, once again, the heretic. Jesus Christ belonged to the true race of prophets. Oh, that sounds nice. What does he say? Because alone in all history, he estimated the greatness of man. One man was true to what is in you and me. He saw that God incarnates himself in man. And evermore goes forth anew to take possession of his world. Talk about Gnosticism. Yep. So self-reliance. No. You know what Christians confess? Complete reliance upon the God-man and the triune God who is in and as the man Jesus. Yeah. So interesting how this... uh, Did did you have anything you want to point out on Bednar specifically? Well, just more in the talk, but... Whatever. Um, Keep going then. Keep okay, going. Okay, sorry. Then. Just, yeah. he, I, I wanted to point out, we're almost to the end of the talk. Yeah. Um, he says, not only does the atonement of Jesus Christ, which once again, he never defines. He doesn't even no, mention the cross. We, we don't know what, yeah. Which the atonement isn't for LDS. It's not in the cross. It's not at the cross where the atonement occurs. Yeah. There's some, some, like I have they'll seen mention some it things now. recently where, yeah, they'll say they'll the garden of Gethsemane and the cross. But, but they want to, I, I heard growing up, it was in the garden. In fact, can I tell a story? There's a, a movie set that the chosen is now using. Yeah. 
um, in, uh, it's actually El- Alberta, but they say Goshen. <laughs> and um, I was on the construction crew that helped build it. And then I was a set dresser for the LDS videos, which I still refuse to watch. I've never watched them, but I was yeah. a set dresser for these clips. And the morning of the crucifixion, uh, I mean, he really didn't need much, uh, the, the director, Bruce Niebuhr. Yeah. Um, and um, so we were prepping for weeks for the Garden of Gethsemane scene, which yeah. they were going to spend at least a weekend. Yep. I mean, it, we took a field that was dead and rocky. I mean, Utah ground. Yeah. And tried to make it a garden. I wow. mean, it was the hardest work, some of the hardest work I've ever done in my life. Yeah. But the, every morning at the work site, we had um, a, you know, get together, get on the same page, uh, it's devotional in quotations, and a prayer. And, and by the way, I'm still Mormon. I'm not active at this point. And I mean, I even needed um, in ecclesiastical endorsement to work there. Right. Oh, yeah. So, so you're with a bunch of people, return missionaries. I worked with all, almost all return missionaries and the exceptions were very, I mean, had to be approved. I mean, they had an artist there that had nothing to do with it, but he was so good that he got an exception. The morning of the crucifixion, Bruce Nebar literally says, now we as Mormons know that the atonement actually took place in the garden and not on the cross, but the cross is pretty important to a lot of evangelical Christians. So let's try really hard. Let's get this done in a day, and then we'll move on to the important part, the Garden of Gethsemane. Anyone who was there that morning, unless they are a liar, can attest to what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's not a surprise if you know the way that LDS approach the atonement as a whole. And yeah. uh, But it is one of those weird just kind of niche views. It's like, why? Yep. You know, what difference does it make? Um, maybe, it's, maybe it is the, uh, the active work sort of an idea of Jesus sweating the drops of blood and laboring through that versus divine wrath being poured out on him, uh, which is the truth of what's going on there. God's wrath is being poured out on him as he dies and suffers a penalty for our sin. But uh, that's the real atonement. That's not LDS atonement. LDS atonement is this obscure mystical uh, power thing that you tap into that helps you become a better you. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, that's the mainstream view. There's, yeah. there's one view we'll get into in a, not this episode, true meaning of the atonement by Cleon Skousen. We'll break that down just because most Christians don't interact with it. And I yep. think it, it makes the most sense within the Mormon worldview. That'd be good. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what it is. And I think it's just a way of being different, right? It's, it's this point of distinction like coffee or anything like that, that, that is more about boundary maintenance than mm-hmm. the truth. And it's ironic. They will throw Bart Ehrman at us. So often. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Barterman doesn't even think the sweat drops of blood thing was original. Yeah. I just want to point that out. Of course, I would disagree with Bart there, but if you're going to throw Mormon scholars, you're going to throw Bart Ehrman at us? Yeah. He doesn't even think that was original yep. to Luke. So. Mm-hmm. so he says, not only does the atonement of Jesus Christ overcome the effects of the fall of Adam. Once again, the fall of Adam, uh, another LDS apostle, what did he say? We read this already, but Adam fell that men might be, quoting the Book of Mormon. Then he says, Adam and Eve, in view of the great sacrifice made to the great plan, a reality, are the great hero and heroine of human history. That's John A. Woodso, period. No mention of Jesus, no mention of Christ. So what fall? Fall upward? Mm -hmm. He then says, make possible the remission of our individual sins and transgressions, okay? But his atonement also enables us to do good and become better in ways that stretch far beyond our mortal capacities. There you go. There's what you just said. Yeah. 
And once again, it turns Jesus into a, an impersonal means, into a vending machine, if I may be so crass. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. He is the end and the means. I have a book up on my shelf that I am uh, looking at right now. And it's called The Third Jesus by Deepak Chopra. And I remember reading that book years ago and uh, wrote a book review on it and everything. And, and Deepak Chopra is as mm-hmm. new, new agey as you can get. Yep. Popular but, around here as well. Yeah, but the whole book is The Third Jesus is this uh, sort of divine Christ that any of us can tap into. And there's various ways that you can tap into it through different religions, even meditation mm-hmm. or di- different ways. But what we're talking about is the same thing. Jesus Jesus was superior because he reached the, the level of divinity that we're all striving toward. Yep. And uh, man, I just, I never thought that reading a book like that from somebody who is considered so unchristian mm-hmm. uh, would become so relevant to the context that I'm doing ministry in now. Yeah, Deepak Chopra, Richard Rohr is also another popular author around here. And listen to this. Uh, he, he says, Bednar, that is, do we, under, do we also understand that the atonement is for faithful men and women who are obedient, worthy, and conscientious, and who are striving to become better and serve more faithfully? Yep. Right? I mean, it, it's, you know, so all this talk of atonement, just, just look at the whole context. Yeah. Look at his story. Look at all this. I mean, this is... The, the atonement is almost just like this springboard to further effort. It's yep. like... Which is, again, can we just be clear here, the exact opposite of what the biblical atonement is. The biblical mm-hmm. atonement is, regardless of how much effort you put into it, you could not be perfectly obedient. It's Galatians 3, right? All who do not abide by all things written in the book of the law are under a curse. So if you're not perfectly obedient to God's law and God's standard, which you got to have a holy, perfect, righteous God in order to have that standard in the first place, which is, again that's right where the LDS church goes wrong is they don't even have the right God to begin with. They don't have a perfect, holy, righteous God who is unlike his creation, who created us and therefore ought to justly judge and condemn his creation for their rebellion against him. They don't have anything like that, but the biblical God is just that. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 3, all who abide, all who do not abide by all things written in the book of the law are under a curse. And the atonement is that Christ came to become the curse for us. He came to take, and again, all this LDS language about blessings, getting the blessings, the blessings, right? You, you've got something over there even on that bit. But this ties into this idea because Paul is talking about how do you, how do you get out from being cursed? Because you're either cursed by God or you're blessed by God. And the only way to be blessed by God is to be perfectly obedient to his covenant standards. And we do see this idea coming up again and again in the curriculum of these covenants that need to be made, these covenants you know, over and over again, you see this coming up. And in one sense, that's right, if we didn't understand what's in the background of all of it with the magic worldview stuff that we've talked about. But in one sense, that's right, that you have to be obedient to the covenants. But here's where the LDS people often, I always go wrong. You have to be perfectly obedient because God is a perfectly holy God. And so if you're not perfectly obedient to the standards of the covenant before God, then the only hope of you being saved is to have faith that he is going to show you steadfast love, even though you have failed in your part of the covenant. And Jesus coming into the world shows that God has 
chosen to be steadfast in his love toward his people, that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. He will rescue his people for his purposes. And so the atonement then becomes a necessity because how do you get a sinful people to have their sins removed from them, to have their sins covered in order to stand and be made right in relationship before a holy God. Well, the only way is if somebody can make that relationship right. Yep. There's a, there, the only way is if somebody who has the not only the the power but also the 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 credibility, you know, the the perfection to go before God and suffer uh, as a substitute in the place of His people taking on the wrath of God in our place, becoming a curse for us, as Paul puts it. He he took all the covenant curses, right? Deuteronomy, oh goodness, blank in 19, 17. I can't remember exactly, but it's one of those. And uh, you've got the list of the curses of the covenant for everybody who doesn't perfectly obey the covenant, and you've got the blessings listed. We're all deserving of the curses, and uh, ultimately the wages of sin is death. So we're all worthy of eternal death because of our sins against the Holy God, but Christ comes and he takes the curse upon himself, becomes a curse for us uh, so that in him we can become the righteousness of God, so that in him we can be, be uh, by faith, by the way, and faith alone, uh, Paul makes that very clear, we can be really united to him and therefore considered the, a blessed child of God rather than one who is cursed. And uh, that all happens only through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Right. I mean, compare this where the cross isn't even mentioned. Uh, and instead, I mean, at the end of the talk, I won't read any more from it. But, you know, he then says, we need to ponder the atonement. And then he says, goes back to the story, right? That to his friend, you know, with the truck and that the heavy load was necessary to produce traction. Compare that with Paul who says, I preach nothing but Christ crucified. Right? And why? I mean, it, it relates to this part where, you know, to what shall I compare this generation, right? Like, John comes preaching holiness and righteousness and judgment, and they don't know how to do the funeral yeah. game. Jesus comes, and they say, you know, the Son of Man, he, Jesus says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. By the way, drinking alcohol, uh, that's a cultural point. Um, and they say, look at him, right? A glutton and a drunkard. So they, they can't do a good funeral or a good wedding. The bad news is too bad. They don't have a real fall. They don't have the wreckage of sin. I mean, if the, the problem is is finitude. I mean, they really blur the line between the fall being about ethics, but really it's just, well, this is how it is. You know, people in their agency, and this is how the cosmos is until you get higher and higher and higher, and then you just don't have to suffer as much. But I guess it's just part of the deal. Mm. That's For us, That's it's not the way it should be. Yeah. Why? Because of rebellion. Not finitude, rebellion. So they don't have a fall, and so the bad news, they don't have the bad news. Yeah. They Which, don't have the bad news, so they don't have the yeah, good news. It should be pointed out that there's a lot of bad news given right before the passage on coming to Jesus and finding rest, and that specifically is Jesus pronouncing woes yep. upon cities where he had done all these great and miraculous works, and yet the people didn't accept him as, mm -hmm. as he preached that he was. 
um, they, they continued to deny that he was truly the Christ, the Son of God, and, uh, and pushed him out. And so it's like, it doesn't matter, I, you know, we, I think we've even brought this up on this podcast, but sometimes people say things, and even relevant to the miracle uh, conversation that we've had, but, but people will say things like, you know, if I, if I saw the miracles of Jesus, then I would believe, right? It's like, <laughs> here's all these people who saw the miracles of Jesus, but they still refused to believe that he was who he was preaching that he was. Mm-hmm. And that was the problem, right? It was this, uh, this, this dissonance with, oh, I want to accept him for all the benefits that he's bringing as a miracle worker, but I don't want to accept that he's God. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's pushing me into the corner, making me feel like I need to either accept yeah. him as God or I don't get him at all. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing, mm-hmm. right? When he's providing free bread, they're all about it. When he says, you have to eat me, yeah. Whoa. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Head out. And and yeah. I mean, think in all these manuals. He. I mean, he says to what uh, Capernaum, you will be brought down to hell. You'll be brought down to Hades. Did they, did they mention that in the manuals? No. No. Um, we we're not covering uh, Luke, but in Luke eleven thirteen, when he's comparing the gifts that a good father would give with, he's like, if you then being evil would give better gifts than that, what about God? Right. Yep. Um, you know what um, <laughs> David Ridges says um, as a comment? Being evil, so no fall, no you know sin. No, he says being human, imperfect. No, I think Jesus meant evil. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just just open Romans three. If you don't agree, you don't see that bad news. And by the way, if you can't see that bad news in the pictures from Auschwitz, yeah, I, I don't know what world you're living in. Yeah. We, we live in a world wrecked by sin. Yep. That's and yet we have a bunch of people, oh, it's the atonement's there for good people to be better. We, it's for good people. It's like, you know, they, they won't look at the bad news, yeah. and so they won't just accept the free gift of a good king. Yeah, it, but, but even aside from the horrendous evils that we see in things like the Holocaust or things like Ukraine or things like, like that— you, you all know the brokenness of sin in your own lives, Yep. right? I mean, you know— uh, what it's like to have to go through, maybe it's maybe it's parents getting a divorce. You know, you know what it's like to have to deal with death. You know what it's like to have to deal with somebody uh, speaking poorly about you behind your back. You know what it's like to have to deal with the fallout of you doing that to someone else and being caught in it. Um, we live in in a, a tangled mess of sin every moment of every day. How do you deal with that? You know, how how do you answer for that? You better have a theology that can answer for it. Um, otherwise, you're just going to be lying to yourself yep. continually. And that's going to lead you to places like what we call depression and anxiety and deep and lasting struggle with no hope. Right. And if it's a bunch of random molecules bouncing around in a meaningless universe, what right do you have you to complain either? Yeah, that's very true. Um, so in Matthew... Uh, and I think that this is coming through in chapter 11 as well. But in Matthew, we see that often the group of people that are leading, of course, the antagonism against Jesus are the scribes and the Pharisees, right? And there is this bit at the end of Matthew that I think is relevant to the passage that we're talking about here of come come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest, And that's from Matthew 23, and it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. 
So practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fingers long, and they love to place they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And we go on and on there, but specifically, I guess what I wanted to point to in that passage is they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. And I do think a lot of what Jesus is dealing with and uh, the ones who are stirring up the woe you know, in all of these cities, the ones who are leading the crowds to deny Jesus for who he truly is. It often is these scribes and these Pharisees who are in the backdrop and are pushing their view of the law onto the people, which was an inaccurate view of the law in the first place. But they're heaping up burdens on the people, making them feel like essentially they're never going to measure up. Right. And and so there's a sense in which when that's what's happening to you, you're going to gravitate to someone like Jesus who's saying, come to me, all your weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And uh, I think that we don't have to stretch very far to show that that's what the LDS church does to their members, heaping up burdens, burden upon burden. Do this, do this, more firewood in the truck, make it happen. And that that can leave somebody in no other place than either pride and thinking that they're doing better than everyone else or desperation because they know they're not. Or, I mean, I guess the third one would be apathy. If I feel like I'm not good enough and I don't want to be depressed, I'm just going to ignore it, you know, and, and act like I don't have to worry about it at all. But what good hope there is that Jesus is saying, come to me, right? If that's you, come to me, come to me. What is this yoke, Skylar? In, in Matthew? Yes. Yeah, Christ, right? Um, I think uh, R.T. France does a good job what the of talking about how often the yoke was likened to wisdom or the Torah, right? By which you would learn in other sources. But here we see the, the Christian view is that Christ is, right? When we're with him and then we learn of him, the rest he provides is salvation in him and, and all the gifts that come from that. The work we have is instead of, once again, being before a holy God judged by his wrath, we are safe in Christ and we can try as children before a loving father. You know, um, we should learn of him. We should try to exemplify what he taught. But is it something we're earning? <laughs> I mean, is it something we are doing as a means of justification, as a means of exaltations or whatever? No. But out of loyalty to a Savior who provides those things, who gives good gifts freely. And it's not cheap grace. The price was God's own Son. That's not cheap, but it is free to those who believe in him. Carson notes on verse 28, come to me all, all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. As the participle suggests those who have become weary through heavy struggling or toil and the burdened, the passive side of weariness, overlooked like beasts of burden to come to him and he will give them rest. 
There's the echo of Jeremiah 31.25, where Yahweh refreshes his people through the new covenant. While there is no need to restrict the burdens, it is impossible not to be reminded of the heavy loads the Pharisees put on men's shoulders. Take my yoke upon you. The rest is eschatological, but also a present reality. That's a good reminder that we will ultimately get final and settled and complete rest in Jesus on the last day. And that's what we, as evangelical Christians, hope in. You know, we, we have a hope that when we die, we're going to be resurrected into new life, and there will be no more toiling and laboring um, in the ways that we know of it now. There will be true salvific rest in Christ. Uh, his salvific work in our place will be brought to completion, and that's a guarantee, and it's received by faith in him that he is our Savior, and when we say Savior, we mean it. He actually yeah. saves us saves. from our sins. Yeah. And we don't save ourselves nope. from our we sins. We were dead That's right. in sins and trespasses. Yeah, or... Not injured. Uh, yeah, which or just look right in the passage where Jesus says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's grace. The Son chooses. That's right. Notice, we don't choose. There's a bunch of stuff in the seminary manual about how, you know, we can come to him and maybe he can help us. And, you know, no, 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 no. He chooses. Yeah. And then look at this in 29. You will find rest, divine passive. The yep. rest is given by Christ. <laughs> yep. It's not something we achieve with him or we achieve without him, which I'm not sure which is the more consistent more musician, probably without him. Yeah. Uh, the, the interpreter latches on to 27 and literally says this. Uh, this is Martin Tanner. Jesus is telling you on verse 27 that you just read, this deeply Trinitarian passage, which is a great passage to keep in mind when people want to tell you, John is so different. What about this verse? Sounds pretty Johannine to me. Um, says, Jesus is telling you that the Father is a man. Mm-hmm. That's, yes. that's the interpreter. He's yeah. saying the only man who really knows the Son is the Father in heaven. No man except the Father in heaven knoweth the Son would be another way to say, this is him clarifying it, mm. Jesus is saying his Father is a man. Yeah. It's like, where, <laughs> and, do, you, where do you get that? Like, yeah. Ugh. Later on in the episode, he says, God will do for us whatever we ask for worthily. Once again, the atonement is for righteous people. We pray worthily, then we get what we want. I mean, this is, people, you need to hear, this is not the same Jesus. No, I mean, this is a different God. I mean, they take this Trinitarian passage that, once again, if you look at it, there is no way around Jesus' knowledge of God, right? We have a Christocentric worldview, um, and that, that's in terms of knowledge, epistemology. That's in terms of practice and morality. I mean, all these things is centered in Christ because the one Trinitarian God who is not a man yeah. incarnated as a man to reveal himself to us and then to accomplish what we couldn't and give the benefits to us as a free gift. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't know how else to put it. It's just, and then we can do the funeral game Mm -hmm. and we can do the wedding game. Yeah. We don't have to be stuck in this middle ground of just like constantly, you know, uh, monitoring our emotions like the weather. 
Mm. Like, just think positive, think positive, happy, 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 be happy yeah. until it breaks down because that's not what it means to be truly human. Yeah, that's right. We can be, we can suffer and we can enjoy and both are from God and can point us to Christ who gives these things as free gifts. That's good. I got to wrap this up. Do you have any last things you want to add here at the end? That's good stuff, though. Well, when it says, what blessings are we promised? Uh, let me just read these two verses from DNC 131. This has come up a lot because this is where the false oh, yeah. predictions, prophecies, they were prophecies from several general authorities of Jesus coming back. Of course, it didn't happen. But it says in here, there is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. It then says the Father has a body of flesh and bones, as tangible as man's. You'll recognize that verse. So that's right in here. So when they say, what blessings are we promised? They're conditioned upon obedience. Jesus doesn't give them. And then just to show how, once again, self-centered, what, what do they end in? Uh, what's, it's the second to last section in this seminary. What sign do I want to give to God? Not what signs has God given to us, which is what the Sabbath day was, right? I mean, and notice this. He creates man day six, and then the seventh day we enter a temple in time, and literally our first day of existence is resting in God, right? And to turn this into a burden was the problem with um, the, the predominant interpretation of the time among the authorities, and I would say LDSism, though um, at least the Pharisees had, the, had one God and the right scriptures. I mean, I just think that is incredible. What sign do I want to give to God? God doesn't need your signs. <laughs> God gave you signs, and we see that throughout the Bible. So, once again, it's not God-centered. It's not the right God. Not the right gospel. Not the right Jesus. Mm, and uh, when you don't have those pieces, it's pretty hard to appreciate this text, and you end up with talks like we just read. Yep, that's right. There's a famous Christian book. It's called The Pilgrim's Progress. And it was written by a Puritan in the 1600s named John Bunyan. And the book is an allegory, and so it's a, you know, story really about the Christian life. And the main character is a man named Christian, and he meets all sorts of people along the way of this journey to the celestial city. But at the beginning of this, uh, the book, Christian happens upon a book, and he begins to read the book. And as he reads the book, he gets this terrible burden on his back. And, of course, the burden represents the weight of his sin, the recognition that he is a sinful person. And along the journey, Christian comes up to a hill, and at the top of the hill he sees a shining light. And he begins to make his way up the hill, which isn't necessarily an easy journey, but he gets up to the top of the hill and at last he sees a shining light and it is the shape of a cross. And uh, Christian is reflecting on that later with a guy named Piety. And Piety asks him, and what saw you else in the way? The way, of course, is the path that he's on to the celestial city. And Christian says, saw why I went but a little further 
and I saw one, as I thought in my mind, hang bleeding upon a tree, and the very sight of him made my burden fall off my back, for I groaned under a weary burden. But then it fell down from off me. Twas a strange thing to me, for I never saw such a thing before, yea, and while I stood looking up, for then I could not I could not forbear looking, three shining ones came to me. One of them testified that my sins were forgiven me, another stripped me of my rags and gave me stripped me of my rags and gave me this broidered coat which you which you can see. And the third set the mark which you see in my forehead, and gave me this sealed roll. And with that, he plucked it out of his bosom. In the uh, story, when he comes up to the hill, the burden, as soon as he sees the cross and the figure hanging there on the cross, of course, representative of Jesus, the uh, burden falls off of his back, rolls down the hill, and lands in the sepulcher. The, uh, the grave. And that's what the atonement does, friends. The atonement is where your burden of sin, your burden of needing to be perfect, rolls away. And when you see Jesus hanging there, uh, you, you can't, you can't, at, at that moment when faith is granted, you see him hanging there and you see him hanging there for you. You can't go on living your life the same. So we're not making a claim that's like, Oh, yeah, this is one of the false things that often gets said about evangelical Christians out here. Oh, if it's just faith, I don't have to do anything. No, no, no. When you realize how much he loved you, that he gave himself for you, um, it changes you. Um, And that change happens, by the way, by way of the Holy Spirit, because it's only by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that you can see who Jesus is to begin with. And when you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, you are filled with the love of God, you are filled with a true love for him and a love for his neighbor, then you take up you take up his yoke happily, uh, but it's a light yoke because it's a yoke that is in him. It's not a yoke where you're trying to earn your salvation. It's a yoke where you have been saved by him and thus walk happily in his ways as as one who loves him as children because of what he's done for you as children. Teachable, that's right. Trying, but he's a loving father. That's right. So. Do you need rest? I do. Hopefully now you know where you can find it. (laughs) All right. Any last words? No, I'll just put some more stuff in the show notes for people that that want more. I've heard the show notes have been a hit, so (laughs) keep keep it up. Thank you for listening. If you have any feedback, write us at distinctivechristianity at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook or Instagram. You can message us there as well. We hope you have a lovely day. Thanks for listening.